Section four of the Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter nine. Thalia in the police court. The magistrate was a kind-hearted man and seemed uncomfortable. He looked from the unemotional Mr. Parr, who stood on the witness stand, to the girl in the steel pen, and she was almost as cool and as self-controlled as the police witness. Her face was one which would have attracted attention in any circumstances, but in the drab setting of the police court her beauty was emphasized and enhanced. The magistrate glanced down at the charge sheet before him. Her age was described as twenty-one, her occupation as secretary. The man of law, who had had many shocks in his lifetime, and had steeled himself to the most unusual and improbable happenings, could only shake his head in despair. "'Is anything known against this woman?' he asked, and felt it was absurd even to refer to the slim, girlish prisoner as a woman. "'She has been under observation for some time, your worship,' was the reply. "'But she has not been in the hands of the police before.' The magistrate looked over his glasses at the girl. "'I cannot understand how you got yourself into this terrible position,' he said. "'A girl who has evidently had the education of a lady.' You've been charged with the theft of a few pounds, for although the article you stole was worth a large sum, that was all that your dishonesty realized. Your act was probably due to some great temptation. I suppose the need for the money was very urgent, yet that does not excuse your act. I shall bind you over to come up for judgment when called upon, treating you as a first offender." and I do most earnestly appeal to you to live honestly and avoid a repetition of this unpleasant experience. The girl bowed slightly and left the box for the police office, and the next case was called. Harvey Friand rose at the same time and made his way out of the court. He was a rich man to whom money represented the goal and object of life. He was the type of man who counted the contents of his pocket every night before he went to bed and he would have had his own mother arrested in similar circumstances. Thalia Drummond's offence was made more hideous in his eyes because her last act of service had been to hand to him the warning of the Crimson Circle, from the shock of which he had not yet recovered. He was a large, thin man with a permanent stoop. His attitude towards the world was one of acute suspicion. For the moment it was one of resentment, for he held the strongest views on the sacredness of property. To Parr, who followed him out of the court, he expressed his disappointment that the girl had not been sent to prison. "'A woman like that is a danger to society,' he complained in his high-pitched, peevish voice. "'How do I know that she isn't in league with these blackguards who are threatening me? Forty thousand they ask for! Forty thousand! he wailed the last words. "'It's your duty to see that I come to no harm. Understand that!' It is your duty. I heard you, said Inspector Parr warily, and as to the girl, I don't suppose she ever heard of the Crimson Circle. She's very young. Young? snarled the lean man. That's the time to punish them, isn't it? Catch them young and punish them young, and you may turn them into respectable citizens. I dare say you're right, agreed the stout Mr. Parr with a sigh, and then inconsequently, Children are a great responsibility. 
Froyan muttered something under his breath, and without so much as a nod of farewell, walked rapidly through the court, into the motor-car which was waiting for him at the entrance to the courthouse. The inspector watched him depart with a slow smile, and, looking round, caught the eye of a young man who was waiting by the clerk's door. "'Good morning, Mr. Beardmore,' he said. "'Are you waiting to see the young lady?' "'Yes. How long will they keep her?' asked Jack nervously. Mr. Parr gazed at him with expressionless eyes, and sniffed. "'If you don't mind my saying so, Mr. Beardmore,' he said quietly, "'you are probably taking a greater interest in Miss Drummond than is good for you.' "'What do you mean?' asked Jack quietly. "'The whole thing was a plot. That beast Froyant!' The inspector shook his head. "'Miss Drummond admitted that she took the statuette,' he said. "'And besides, we saw her coming out of Isaac's. There isn't any doubt about it. She only made the admission for some reason best known to herself, said Jack violently. Do you think a girl like that would steal? Why should she? I would have given her anything she wanted. He checked himself suddenly. There's something behind this, he went on more quietly. Something which I do not understand, and probably you do not understand either, Inspector. The door opened at that moment, and the girl came out. She stopped at the sight of Jack, and a faint flush crept into her pale face. "'Were you in court?' she asked quickly. He nodded, and she shook her head. "'You shouldn't have come,' she said almost vehemently. "'How did you know? Who told you?' She seemed oblivious to the presence of the inspector, but for the first time since her arrest she showed some sign of her pent emotion. The colour came and went and her voice shook a little, as she continued. "'I'm sorry you knew anything about it, Mr. Beardmore, and I'm desperately sorry you came,' she said. "'But it isn't true,' he interrupted. "'You can tell me that, Thilia. It was a plot, wasn't it? A plot intended to ruin you.' His voice was almost pleading, but she shook her head. "'There was no plot,' she said quietly. "'I stole from Mr. Froyant.' "'Why? Why?' he asked despairingly. "'Why did you—' "'I'm afraid I can't tell you why,' she said with the ghost of a smile on her lips. "'Except that I needed the money, and that is good and sufficient reason, isn't it?' "'I'll never believe it.' Jack's face was set, and his grey eyes regarded her steadily. "'You are not the kind who would indulge in petty pilfering.' She looked at him for a long time and then turned her eyes to the inspector. "'You may be able to undeceive Mr. Beardmore,' she said. "'I am afraid I cannot.' "'Where are you going?' he asked, as, with a little nod, she was passing on. "'I am going home,' she replied. "'Please don't come with me, Mr. Beardmore.' "'But you have no home.' "'I have a lodging,' she said, with a hint of impatience. "'Then I am going with you,' he said doggedly. She did not make any remonstrance, and they passed from the court together into the busy street. No word was spoken until they reached the entrance of a tube station. "'Now I must go home,' she said more gently than before. "'But what are you going to do?' he demanded. "'How are you going to get your living with this terrible charge against you?' "'Is it so terrible?' she asked coolly. She was walking into the station entrance when he took her arm 
and swung her round with almost savage violence. "'Now listen to me, Thalia,' he said between his teeth. "'I love you, and I want to marry you. I haven't told you that before, but you've guessed it. I'm not going to allow you to go out of my life. Do you understand that? I do not believe that you are a thief, and... Very gently she disengaged his grip. Mr. Beardmore, she said in a low voice, you are just being quixotic and foolish. You've told me what you will not allow, and I tell you that I'm not going to allow you to ruin your life through your infatuation for a convicted thief. You know nothing of me except that I am a seemingly nice girl whom you met by accident in the country, and it is my duty to be your mother and your maiden aunt. There was a glint of amusement in her eye as she took his offered hand. Some day, perhaps, we shall meet again, and by that time the glamour of romance will have worn off. Goodbye. She had disappeared into the booking hall before he could find his voice. Chapter 10 The Summons of the Crimson Circle Thalia Drummond went back to the lodging she had occupied before she had entered Mr. Harvey Froyant's service as resident secretary, and apparently the story of her ill deeds had preceded her for the stout landlady gave her a chilly welcome. And had she not continued to pay the rent for her one room during the time she was working for Froyant, it was probable that she would not have been admitted. It was a small room, neatly yet plainly furnished, and oblivious to the landlady's glum face and cold reception, she went to her apartment and locked the door behind her. She had spent a very unpleasant week, for she had been remanded in custody, and her very clothes seemed to exhale the musty odour of Holloway jail. Holloway, however, had an advantage which number 14 Lexington Street did not possess. It had an admirable system of bathrooms, for which the girl was truly grateful as she began to change. She had plenty to occupy her mind. Harvey Froyant, Jack Beardmore. She frowned as though at a distasteful thought, and tried to dismiss him from her mind. It was a relief to go back to Froyant. She almost hated him. She certainly despised him. The time she had spent in his house had been the most wretched period in her life. She had taken her meals with the servants, and had been conscious that every scrap of food she ate had been measured and weighed and duly apportioned by a man whose check for seven figures would have been honoured. "'At least he didn't make love to you, my dear,' she said to herself, and smiled. Somehow she couldn't imagine Harvey Froyant making love to anybody. She recalled the days she had followed him about his big house with a notebook in her hand, whilst he searched for evidence of his servant's neglect, drawing his fingers along the polished shelves in the library in a vain search for dust, turning up carpet corners, examining silver, or else counting, as he did regularly every week, the contents of his still-room. He measured the wine at table, and counted the empty bottles, even the corks. It was his boast that in his big garden he could tell the absence of a flower. These he sent to market regularly, with the vegetables he grew and the peaches which ripened on the wall, and woe betide the unlucky gardener who had poached so much as a ripe apple from the orchard, for Harvey had an uncanny instinct which led him to the rifled tree. She smiled a little wryly at the recollection, and, Having completed her change of costume, she went out, locking the door behind her. 
Her landlady watched her pass down the street and nodded ominously. "'Your lodger's come back,' said a neighbour. "'Yeah, she's come back,' said the woman grimly. "'A nice lady she is, I don't think. It's the first time I've ever had a crook in my house, and it'll be the last. I'm giving her notice tonight.' Unconscious of the criticism, Thalia boarded a bus which took her into the city. She got down in Fleet Street, went into the large office of a popular newspaper. At the desk she took an advertisement form, looked at the white sheet for a moment thoughtfully, and then wrote, "'Secretary. Young lady from the colonies requires post as secretary. Resident secretary preferred. Small wages required. Shorthand and typewriting.' She left a space for the box number, handed the advertisement across the counter, and paid the fee. She was back again in Lexington Street in time for tea, a meal which was brought up to her on a battered tray by her landlady. "'Look here, Miss Drummond,' said that worthy person. "'Got a few words to say to you.' "'Say them,' said the girl carelessly. "'I shall want your room after next week.' Thalia turned slowly. "'Does that mean I've got to get out?' That's what it means. I can't have people like you staying in a respectable house. I'm surprised at you, a young lady, as I always thought you were. Continue to think so, said Thalia, coolly. I'm both young and ladylike. But the stout landlady was not to be checked in her well-rehearsed indictment. A nice lady you are, she said, giving my house a bad name. You've been in prison for a week. Perhaps you don't think I know, but I read the newspapers. "'I'm sure you do,' said the girl quietly. "'That will do, Mrs. Bolet. I leave your house next week.' "'And I should like to say,' began the woman, "'say it on the mat,' said Thalia, and closed the door in the choleric lady's face. As it was now growing dark, she lit a kerosene lamp and occupied the evening by manicuring her nails, an operation which was interrupted by the arrival of the nine o'clock post. She heard the rat tat at the door, and the heavy feet of her landlady on the stairs. "'A letter for you,' called the woman. Thalia unlocked the door and took the envelope from the landlady's hand. "'You'd better tell your friends that you're going to get a new address,' said the woman, loath to leave her quarrel half-finished. "'I haven't told my friends yet that I live in such a horrible place,' said Thalia sweetly, and locked the door before the woman could think of a suitable reply." She smiled as she carried the envelope to the light. It was addressed in printed characters. She turned it over, looking at the postmark before she opened it, and extracted a thick white card. At the first glance of the message, her face changed its expression. The card was a square one, and in the centre was a large crimson circle. Within the circle was written in the same printed characters, "'We have need of you.' Enter the car which you will find waiting at the corner of Stain Square at ten o'clock tomorrow night. She put the card down on the table and stared at it. The Crimson Circle had need of her. She had expected the summons, but it had come earlier than she had anticipated. Chapter 11 The Confession At three minutes to ten the following night, a closed car drove slowly into Stain Square and came to a halt at the corner of Clarge Street. A few minutes later, Thalia Drummond walked into the square from the other end. She wore a long black cloak, and a little hat upon her head, 
was held in its position by a thick veil knotted under her chin. Without a second's hesitation, she opened the door of the car and stepped in. It was in complete darkness, but she could see the figure of the driver indistinctly. He did not turn his head, nor did he attempt to start the car, although she felt the vibration of the engines beneath her feet. "'You were charged at the Marleybone Police Court yesterday morning with theft,' said the driver without preamble. "'Yesterday afternoon you inserted an advertisement describing yourself as a newly arrived colonial, your intention being to find another situation where you could continue your career of petty pilfering.' "'This is very interesting,' said Thalia, without a tremor of voice. "'But you did not bring me here to give me my past history. "'When I had your letter, I guessed that you thought I would be a very useful assistant. "'But there is one question I want to ask you.' "'If I wish to reply, I shall,' was the uncompromising answer. "'I realize that,' said Thalia, with a faint smile in darkness. "'Suppose I had communicated with the police, and I had come here, attended by Mr. Parr and the clever Mr. Derek Yale.' "'You would have been lying on the pavement dead by now,' was the calm announcement. "'Miss Drummond, I am going to put easy money in your way, and find you a very excellent job. I do not even mind if you indulge in your eccentricity in your spare time, but your principal task will be to serve me.' You understand? She nodded, and then, realizing he could not see her, she said, Yes. You will be paid well for everything you do. I shall always be on hand to help you, or to punish you if you attempt to betray me, he added. Do you understand? Perfectly, she replied. Your job will be a very simple one, went on the unknown driver. You will present yourself at Brabazon's bank tomorrow. Brabazon is in need of a secretary. But will he employ me? she interrupted. Must I go in another name? Go in your own name, said the man impatiently. Don't interrupt. I will pay you two hundred pounds for your services. Here is the money. He thrust two notes over his shoulder, and she took them. Her hand accidentally touched his shoulder, and she felt something hard beneath his fleecy coat. A bulletproof waistcoat, she noted mentally, and then aloud, What am I to say to Mr. Brabazon about my earlier experience? It will be unnecessary to say anything or do anything. You will receive your instructions from time to time. That is all, he added shortly. A few minutes later, Thalia Drummond sat in the corner of the taxicab, which was taking her back to Lexington Street. Behind her, at intervals, came another taxicab, which slowed when hers did, but never overtook her, not even when she descended at the corner of the street where her lodgings were situated. And when she turned the key of her street door, Inspector Parr was only a dozen paces from her. If she knew that she was being shadowed, she made no sign. Parr only waited for a few minutes, watching the house from the opposite side of the roadway, and then, as our light appeared in the upper window, he turned and walked thoughtfully back to the cab which had brought him so far eastward. He had opened the door of the cab and was stepping in, 
when somebody passed him on the sidewalk, somebody who was walking briskly with his collar turned up, but Inspector Parr knew him. Flush, he called sharply, and the man turned round on his heel. He was a little, dark, thin-faced, lithe man. At the side of the inspector his jaw dropped. Why, why, Mr. Parr, he said with ill-affected geniality, who ever thought of seeing you in this part of the world? I want a little talk with you, Flush. Will you walk along with me? It was an ominous invitation, which Mr. Flush had heard before. You haven't got anything against me, Mr. Parr, he said loudly. Nothing, admitted Parr. Besides, you're going straight now. I seem to remember you telling me that day you came out of prison. That's right, said Flush Barnet, heaving a sigh of relief. Going straight, working for my living, and engaged to be married. You don't tell me, said the stout Mr. Parr, with simulated astonishment. And is it Bella or Milly? It is Milly, said Flush, inwardly cursing the excellent memory of the police inspector. She's going straight, too. She's got a job at one of the shops. At Brabazon's bank, to be exact, said the inspector, and then turned as though some thought had arrested him. I wonder, he muttered. I wonder if that is it. She's a perfect young lady, is Milly, Mr. Flush hastened to explain. Honest at the day, wouldn't swipe a clock, not if her life depended on it. I don't want you to think she's bad, Mr. Parr, because she's not. We're both living what I might term an honest life. Parr's placid face wrinkled in a smile. That's grand news you're telling me, Flush. Where is Milly to be found in these days? She's living in diggings on the other side of the river, said Flush reluctantly. You're not going to rake up old scandals, are you, Mr. Parr? Heaven forbid, said Inspector Parr piously. No, I'd like to have a talk with her. Perhaps, he hesitated. Anyway, it can wait. It was rather providential meeting you, Flush. But Flush did not share that view, even though he expressed a faint acquiescence. So that's it, said Inspector Parr to himself. But he did not express the nature of his suspicions, even when he met Derek Yale at his club half an hour later. And it was a further curious fact that, though they touched every aspect of the Crimson Circle mystery in the long conversation which followed, never once did Mr. Parr mention Thalia Drummond's interview, which, if he had not seen, he had at least guessed. The two men left early the next morning for the little country town where one Ambrose Sibley, described as an able seaman, was held on a charge of murder. At his own earnest request, Jack Beardmore was allowed to accompany them, though he was not present at the interview between the two detectives and the sullen man who had slain his father. A brawny, unshaven fellow, half Scottish, half Swede, Sibley proved to be. He could neither read nor write, and had been in the hands of the police before. This much Parr had discovered from a reference of his fingerprints. At first he was not inclined to commit himself, and it was rather Derek Yale's skilful cross-examination than Inspector Parr's efforts which produced the confession. "'Yes, I did it all right,' he said at last. They were seated in the cell, with an official shorthand writer taking a note of his statement. "'You've got me proper, but you wouldn't have got me if I hadn't been drunk. And whilst I'm confessing, I might as well own up that I killed Harry Hobbs. He was a shipmate of mine, 
on the Oritianga in 1912. They can only hang me once. Killed him and chucked his body overboard, I did, over the question of a woman that we met at Newport News, which is in America. I'll tell you how this happened, gentlemen. I lost my ship about a month ago and was stranded at the sailor's home at Wapping. I got chucked out of there for being drunk, and on top of that, I was locked up and got seven days' imprisonment. If the old fool had only given me a month, I shouldn't have been here. One night after I came out of prison, I was walking through the East End, down on my luck and starving for a drink, and feeling properly miserable. To make it worse, I had a toothache. Parr met Derek Yale's eyes, and Derek smiled faintly. I was loafing along the edge of the pavement, looking for cigarette ends, and thinking of nothing except where I could get a bit of food and a night's lodging. It was beginning to rain, too, and it looked as though I was going to have another night on the streets. When I heard a voice say, almost in my ear, "'Jump in!' I looked round. A motor-car was standing by the side of the roadway. I couldn't believe my ears. Presently the man in the car said, "'Jump in! It's you, I mean!' And he mentioned my name. We drove along for a while without his saying anything, and I noticed that he kept clear of all the streets where the big lights were. After a bit he stopped the car and began to tell me who I was. I can assure you I was surprised. He knew the whole of my history, even knew about Harry Hobbs. I was tried for that killing and acquitted. And then he asked me if I'd like to earn a hundred pounds. I told him I would, and he said there was an old gentleman in the country who had done him a lot of harm, and he wanted him outed. I didn't want to take the job on for some time, but he gave me such a lot of talk about how he could get me hung for Hobbs' murder, and how it was safe, and he'd give me a bicycle to get away on, and at last I agreed. He picked me up by arrangement a week later in Stained Square. Then he gave me all the final particulars. I got down to Beardmore's place soon after it was dark and hid in the wood. He told me Mr. Beardmore generally walked through the wood every morning and that I was to make myself comfortable for the night. I hadn't been in the wood an hour when I had a fright. I heard somebody moving. I think it must have been a gamekeeper. He was a big fellow, and I only just got a glimpse of him. I think that's about all, gentlemen, except that the next morning the old fellow came in the wood and I shot him. I don't remember much about it, for I was drunk at the time, having taken a bottle of whiskey into the wood with me, but I was sober enough to get on to the bicycle and I rode off. I should have got away altogether, if it hadn't been for the booze. "'And that is all?' asked Pa, when the confession had been read over, and the man had affixed a rough cross. "'That's all, Governor,' said the sailor. "'And you don't know who it was who employed you?' "'Not the faintest idea,' said the other, cheerfully. "'There's one thing about him, though, I could tell you,' he said, after a pause. "'He kept using a word that I've never heard before.' I'm not highly educated, but I've noticed that some men have favourite words. We had an old skipper who always used the word morbid. What was the word? asked Pa. The man scratched his head. I'll remember it and let you know, he said, and they left him to his meditations, which were few and probably not unpleasant. Four hours after, the jailer took Ambrose Sipley some food. He was lying on his bed, and the jailer shook him by the shoulder. "'Wake up,' he said. But Ambrose Sibley never woke again. He was stone dead, and in the tin dipper half filled with water which stood by his bed, 
and with which he had slaked his thirst, they found sufficient hydrocyanic acid to kill fifty men. But it was not the poison which interested Inspector Parr so much as the little circle of crimson paper which was found floating on the top of the water. End of section four.